This month is all Edgar Allan Poe on Blacklock Audio Tales. Up first, Edgar Allan Poe, Death of Edgar Allan Poe, The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Flav, The Gold Bug, Four Beasts in One, The Homo Camel Leopard, Murders and the Rue Morgue, The Mystery of Mary Roget, the Balloon Hoax, Miss Found in a Bottle, The Oval Portrait. Blacklock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. It's still cold outside in a lot of places. Why don't you get some of those dino sound slippers? Walk around, make dino sounds. It's super fun. Be a clown. Get some of those cool t-shirts that they have all around at founditemclothing.com. Look like your favorite cool guy from your favorite 80s movie. Or maybe a bad guy from an 80s movie if that's your thing too. Or just, do you like t-shirts that celebrate cult films from the 80s and 90s? Founditemclothing.com, you should go with them. And while we're talking about people, a quick shout out to Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio, Google it. Search for it online. Uh, Zach Ferguson, look for the show notes for Articulate Warbling, a podcast I produce. Let's see, what else? Um, search for Twisted Pulp Radio, I think it is what it's called. And Twisted Pulp Radio, Twisted Pulp Show. Anyway, it's a pulp radio show produced out of some radio station in California, and I lend some voice talents to that occasionally okay what else do we have in the show notes dave's corner of the universe check out dave's corner of the universe by just simply searching for dave's corner of the universe there's no other dave's corners of the universe out there and also listen for dave's little specials here and there on black clock audio tales and also dave's underground goat shenanigans which just had a christmas special drop and hopefully we'll have its episode one happen within the month of January. So we'll see when all that happens. It's going to be super cool. And also, don't forget to follow Black Clock Audio Tales on social media. Just look for PGTTCM. That's the website, PGTTCM.com, for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, our monthly Cthulhu Mythos show that, oh, unfortunately, we just had a reading last month, but hey, this month, we're going to go back to having an episode. And also, let's not forget that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PGTTCM, or look for Black Clock Audio Tales if that doesn't work. And let's not forget you are wonderful, and I think you're great. Okay. Recording by Novella Serena. The works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Fall, Part 3. At six o'clock I perceived a great portion of the Earth's visible area to the eastward involved in thick shadow, 
which continued to advance with great rapidity until, at five minutes before seven, the whole surface in view was enveloped in the darkness of night. It was not, however, until long after this time that the rays of the setting sun ceased to illumine the balloon. And this circumstance, although of course fully anticipated, did not fail to give me an infinite deal of pleasure. It was evident that, in the morning, I should behold the rising luminary many hours at least before the citizens of Rotterdam, in spite of their situation so much farther to the eastward. And thus, day after day, in proportion to the height ascended, would I enjoy the light of the sun for a longer and a longer period. I now determined to keep a journal of my passage, reckoning the days from one to twenty-four hours continuously, without taking into consideration the intervals of darkness. At ten o'clock, feeling sleepy, I determined to lie down for the rest of the night. But here difficulty presented itself, which, obvious as it may appear, had escaped my attention up to the very moment of which I am now speaking. If I went to sleep as I proposed, how could the atmosphere in the chamber be regenerated in the interim? To breathe it for more than an hour, at the farthest, would be a matter of impossibility, or if even this term could be extended to an hour and a quarter, the most ruinous consequences might ensue. The consideration of this dilemma gave me no little disquietude, and it will hardly be believed that after the dangers I had undergone I should look upon this business in so serious a light as to give up all hope of accomplishing my ultimate design, and finally make up my mind to the necessity of descent. But this hesitation was only momentary. I reflected that man is the various slave of custom, and that many points in the routine of his existence are deemed essentially important, which are only so at all by his having rendered them habitual. It was very certain that I could not do without sleep, but I might easily bring myself to feel no inconvenience from being awakened at intervals of an hour during the whole period of my repose. It would require but five minutes at most to regenerate the atmosphere in the fullest manner, and the only real difficulty was to contrive a method of arousing myself at the proper moment for so doing. But this was a question which, I am willing to confess, occasioned me no little trouble in its solution. To be sure, I had heard of the student who, to prevent his falling asleep over his books, held in one hand a ball of copper the din of whose descent into a basin of the same metal on the floor beside his chair served effectually to startle him up, if, at any moment, he should be overcome with drowsiness. My own case, however, was very different indeed, and left me no room for any similar idea, for I did not wish to keep awake, but to be aroused from slumber at regular intervals of time. I at length hit upon the following expedient, which, simple as it may seem, was hailed by me, at the moment of discovery, as an invention fully equal to that of the telescope, the steam-engine, or the art of printing itself. It is necessary to premise that the balloon, at the elevation now attained, continued its course upward with an even and undeviating ascent, and the car consequently followed with a steadiness so perfect that it would have been impossible to detect in it the slightest vacillation whatever. This circumstance favoured me greatly in the project I now determined to adopt. My supply of water had been put on board in kegs containing five gallons each, and ranged very securely around the interior of the car. I unfastened one of these, and taking two ropes, 
tied them tightly across the rim of the wickerwork from one side to the other, placing them about a foot apart and parallel, so as to form a kind of shelf, upon which I placed the keg, and steadied it in a horizontal position. About eight inches immediately below these ropes, and four feet from the bottom of the car, I fastened another shelf, but made it of thin plank, being the only similar piece of wood I had. Upon this latter shelf, and exactly beneath one of the rims of the keg, a small earthen pitcher was deposited. I now bored a hole in the end of the keg over the pitcher, and fitted a plug of soft wood, cut in a tapering or conical shape. This plug I pushed in or pulled out, as might happen, until after a few experiments it arrived at that exact degree of tightness, at which the water, oozing from the hole and falling into the pitcher below, would fill the ladder to the brim in the period of sixty minutes. This, of course, was a matter briefly and easily ascertained by noticing the proportion of the pitcher filled in any given time. Having arranged all this, the rest of the plan is obvious. My bed was so contrived upon the floor of the car as to bring my head, in lying down, immediately below the mouth of the pitcher. It was evident that, at the expiration of an hour, the pitcher, getting full, would be forced to run over, and to run over at the mouth, which was somewhat lower than the rim. It was also evident that the water thus falling from a height of more than four feet could not do otherwise than fall upon my face, and that the short consequences would be to waken me up instantaneously, even from the soundest slumber in the world. It was fully eleven by the time I had completed these arrangements, and I immediately betook myself to bed, with full confidence in the efficiency of my invention. Nor in this matter was I disappointed. Punctually, every sixty minutes, was I aroused by my trusty chronometer. When, having emptied the pitcher into the bunghole of the keg, and performed the duties of the condenser, I retired again to bed. These regular interruptions to my slumber caused me even less discomfort than I had anticipated, and when I finally arose for the day, it was seven o'clock, and the sun had attained many degrees above the line of my horizon. April 3rd. I found the balloon at an immense height indeed, and the earth's apparent convexity increased in a material degree. Below me in the ocean lay a cluster of black specks, which undoubtedly were islands. Far away to the northward I perceived a thin, white, and exceedingly brilliant line, or streak, on the edge of the horizon, and I had no hesitation in supposing it to be the southern disk of the ices of the polar sea. My curiosity was greatly excited, for I had hopes of passing on much farther to the north, and might possibly, at some period, find myself placed directly above the pole itself. I now lamented that my great elevation would, in this case, prevent my taking as accurate a survey as I could wish. Much, however, might be ascertained. Nothing else of an extraordinary nature occurred during the day. My apparatus all continued in good order, and the balloon still ascended without any perceptible vacillation. The cold was intense, and obliged me to wrap up closely in an overcoat. When darkness came over the earth I betook myself to bed although it was for many hours afterward broad daylight all around my immediate situation. The water-clock was punctual in its duty, and I slept until the next morning soundly, with the exception of a periodical interruption. April 4th arose in good health and spirits, and was astonished at the singular change which had taken place in the appearance of the sea. 
It had lost, in a great measure, the deep tints of blue it had hitherto worn, being now of a grayish white, and of a luster dazzling to the eye. The islands were no longer visible, whether they had passed down the horizon to the southeast, or whether my increasing elevation had left them out of sight, it is impossible to say. I was inclined, however, to the latter opinion. The rim of ice to the northward was growing more and more apparent, cold by no means so intense. Nothing of importance occurred, and I passed the day in reading, having taken care to supply myself with books. April 5th beheld the singular phenomenon of the sun rising, while nearly the whole visible surface of the earth continued to be involved in darkness. In time, however, the light spread itself over all, and I again saw the line of ice to the northward. It was now very distinct, and appeared of a much darker hue than the waters of the ocean. I was evidently approaching it, and with great rapidity, fancied I could again distinguish a strip of land to the eastward, and one also to the westward, but could not be certain. Weather moderate, nothing of any consequence happened during the day, went early to bed. April 6th, was surprised at finding the rim of ice at a very moderate distance, and an immense field of the same material stretching away off to the horizon in the north. It was evident that if the balloon held its present course, it would soon arrive above the frozen ocean, and I had now little doubt of ultimately seeing the pole. During the whole of the day I continued to near the ice. Toward night, the limits of my horizon very suddenly and materially increased owing undoubtedly to the earth's form of being that of an oblate spheroid, and my arriving above the flattened regions in the vicinity of the arctic circle. When darkness at length overtook me, I went to bed in great anxiety, fearing to pass over the object of so much curiosity, when I should have no opportunity of observing it. April 7th. Arose early, and, to my great joy, at length beheld what there could be no hesitation in supposing the northern pole itself. It was there beyond a doubt, and immediately beneath my feet. But alas, I had now ascended to so vast a distance that nothing could with accuracy be discerned. Indeed, to judge from the progression of the numbers indicating my various altitudes, respectively, at different periods, between 6 a.m. on the 2nd of April, and 20 minutes before 9 a.m. of the same day, at which time the barometer ran down, it might be fairly inferred that the balloon had now, at 4 o'clock in the morning of April the 7th, reached a height of not less, certainly, than 7,254 miles above the surface of the sea. This elevation may appear immense, but the estimate upon which it is calculated gave a result in all probability far inferior to the truth. At all events I undoubtedly beheld the whole of the earth's major diameter. The entire northern hemisphere lay beneath me, like a chart, orthographically projected, and the great circle of the equator itself formed the boundary line of my horizon. Your excellencies may, however, readily imagine that the confined regions hitherto unexplored within the limits of the Arctic Circle, although situated directly beneath me, and therefore seen without any appearance of being foreshortened, were still in themselves comparatively too diminutive, and at too great a distance from the point of sight to admit 
of any very accurate examination. Nevertheless, what could be seen was of a nature singular and exciting. Northwardly, from that huge rim before mentioned, and which, with slight qualification, may be called the limit of human discovery in these regions, one unbroken, or nearly unbroken, sheet of ice continues to extend. In the first few degrees of this its progress, its surface is very sensibly flattened, farther on depressed into a plain, and finally, becoming not a little concave, it terminates, at the pole itself, in a circular centre, sharply defined, whose apparent diameter subtended at the balloon an angle of about sixty-five seconds, and whose dusky hue, varying in intensity, was at all times darker than any other spot upon the visible hemisphere, and occasionally deepened into the most absolute and impenetrable blackness. Farther than this little could be ascertained. By twelve o'clock the circular centre had materially decreased in circumference, and by seven p.m. I lost sight of it entirely. The balloon passing over the western limb of the ice, and floating away rapidly in the direction of the equator. April 8th found a sensible diminution in the earth's apparent diameter, besides a material alteration in its general color and appearance. The whole visible area partook in different degrees of a tint of pale yellow, and in some portions had acquired a brilliancy even painful to the eye. My view downward was also considerably impeded by the dense atmosphere in the vicinity of the surface being loaded with clouds, between whose masses I could only now and then obtain a glimpse of the earth itself. This difficulty of direct vision had troubled me more or less for the last forty-eight hours, but my present enormous elevation brought closer together, as it were, the floating bodies of vapor, and the inconvenience became, of course, more and more palpable in proportion to my ascent. Nevertheless, I could easily perceive that the balloon now hovered above the range of great lakes in the continent of North America, and was holding a course due south which would bring me to the tropics. This circumstance did not fail to give me the most heartful satisfaction, and I hailed it as a happy omen of ultimate success. Indeed, the direction I had hitherto taken had filled me with uneasiness, for it was evident that, had I continued it much longer, there would have been no possibility of my arriving at the moon at all, whose orbit is inclined to the elliptic at only the small angle of five degrees eight feet forty-eight inches. April 9th. Today the Earth's diameter was greatly diminished, and the color of the surface assumed hourly a deeper tint of yellow. The balloon kept steadily on her course to the southward and arrived, at 9 p.m., over the northern edge of the Mexican Gulf. April 10th. I was suddenly aroused from slumber, about five o'clock this morning, by a loud crackling and terrific sound, for which I could no manner account. It was of a very brief duration, but, while it lasted, resembled nothing in the world of which I had any previous experience. It is needless to say that I became excessively alarmed, having, in the first instance, attributed the noise to the bursting of the balloon. I examined all my apparatus, however, with great attention, and could discover nothing out of order. Spent a great part of the day in meditating upon an occurrence so extraordinary, but could find no means whatever of accounting for it. Went to bed dissatisfied and in a state of great anxiety and agitation. April 11th 
found a startling diminution in the apparent diameter of the earth, and a considerable increase now observable for the first time in that of the moon itself, which wanted only a few days of being full. It now required long and excessive labor to condense within the chamber sufficient atmospheric air for the sustenance of life. April 12th. A singular alteration took place in regard to the direction of the balloon, and although fully anticipated, afforded me the most unequivocal delight. Having reached, in its former course, about the twentieth parallel of southern latitude, it turned off suddenly, at an acute angle, to the eastward, and thus proceeded throughout the day, keeping nearly, if not altogether, in the exact plane of the lunar eclipse. What was worthy of remark, a very perceptible vacillation in the car, was a consequence of this change of route, a vacillation which prevailed, in more or less degree, for a period of many hours. April 13th was again very much alarmed by a repetition of the loud crackling noise which terrified me on the 10th, thought long upon the subject, but was unable to form any satisfactory conclusion. Great decrease in the earth's apparent diameter, which now subtended from the balloon at an angle of very little more than twenty-five degrees. The moon could not be seen at all, being nearly in my zenith. I still continued in the plane of the ellipse, but made little progress to the eastward. April 14th. Extremely rapid decrease in the diameter of the earth. Today I became strongly impressed with the idea that the balloon was now actually running up the line of apsides to the point of perigee, in other words, holding the direct course which would bring it immediately to the moon in that part of its orbit the nearest to the earth. The moon itself was directly overhead, and consequently hidden from my view. Great and long-continued labor necessary for the condensation of the atmosphere. April 15th. Not even the outlines of continents and seas could now be traced upon the earth with anything approaching distinctness. About twelve o'clock I became aware, for the third time, of that appalling sound which had so astonished me before. It now, however, continued for some moments, and gathered intensity as it continued. At length, while stupefied and terror-stricken, I stood in expectation of I knew not what hideous destruction. The car vibrated with excessive violence, and a gigantic and flaming mass of some material which I could not distinguish came with a voice of a thousand thunders roaring and booming by the balloon. When my fears and astonishment had in some degree subsided, I had little difficulty in supposing it to be some mighty volcanic fragment ejected from that world to which I was so rapidly approaching, and in all probability one of that singular class of substances occasionally picked up on the earth, and termed meteoric stones for want of a better appellation. April 16th. Today, looking upward as well as I could, through each of the side windows alternately, I beheld, to my great delight, a very small portion of the moon's disk protruding, as it were, on all sides beyond the huge circumference of the balloon. My agitation was extreme, for I had now little doubt of soon reaching the end of my perilous voyage. Indeed, the labor now required by the condenser had increased to a most oppressive degree, and allowed me scarcely any respite from exertion. Sleep was a matter nearly out of the question. I became quite ill, and my frame trembled with exhaustion. 
It was impossible that human nature could endure this state of intense suffering much longer. During the now brief interval of darkness, a meteoric stone again passed in my vicinity, and the frequency of these phenomena began to occasion me much apprehension. April 17th. This morning proved an epoch in my voyage. It will be remembered that, on the 13th, the earth subtended at an angular breadth of 25 degrees. On the 14th, this had greatly diminished. On the 15th, a still more remarkable decrease was observable, and on retiring on the night of the 16th, I had noticed an angle of no more than about 7 degrees and 15 minutes. What, therefore, must have been my amazement, on awakening from a brief and disturbed slumber, on the morning of this day, the 17th, at finding the surface beneath me so suddenly and wonderfully augmented in volume, as to subtend no less than 39 degrees in apparent angular diameter. I was thunderstruck. No words can give any adequate idea of the extreme, the absolute horror and astonishment with which I was seized, possessed, and altogether overwhelmed. My knees tottered beneath me, my teeth chattered, my hair started up on end. The balloon, then, had actually burst. These were the first tumultuous ideas that hurried through my mind. The balloon had positively burst. I was falling falling with the most impetuous, the most unparalleled velocity. To judge by the immense distance already so quickly passed over, it could not be more than ten minutes, at the farthest, before I should meet the surface of the earth, and be hurled into annihilation. But at length reflection came to my relief. I paused, I considered, and I began to doubt. The matter was impossible. I could not, in any reason, have so rapidly come down. Besides, Although I was evidently approaching the surface below me, it was with a speed by no means commensurate with the velocity I had at first so horribly conceived. This consideration served to calm the perturbation of my mind, and I finally succeeded in regarding the phenomenon in its proper point of view. In fact, amazement must have fairly deprived me of my senses when I could not see the vast difference in appearance between the surface below me and the surface of my mother earth. The ladder was indeed over my head, and completely hidden by the balloon, while the moon, the moon itself in all its glory, lay beneath me and at my feet. The stupor and surprise produced in my mind by this extraordinary change in the posture of affairs was perhaps, after all, that part of the adventure least susceptible of explanation. For the bouleversement in itself was not only natural and inevitable, but had been long actually anticipated as a circumstance to be expected whenever I should arrive at that exact point of my voyage where the attraction of the planet should be superseded by the attraction of the satellite, or more precisely, where the gravitation of the balloon toward the earth should be less powerful than its gravitation toward the moon. To be sure I arose from a sound slumber, with all my senses in confusion, to the contemplation of a very startling phenomenon and one which, although expected, was not expected at the moment. The revolution itself must, of course, have taken place in an easy and gradual manner, and it is by no means clear that, had I even been awake at the time of the occurrence, I should have been made aware of it by any internal evidence of an inversion, that is to say, by any inconvenience or disarrangement, either about my person or about my apparatus. It is almost needless to say that, 
upon coming to a due sense of my situation and emerging from the terror which had absorbed every faculty of my soul my attention was in the first place wholly directed to the contemplation of the general physical appearance of the moon it lay beneath me like a chart and although i judged it to be still at no inconsiderable distance the indentures of its surface were defined to my vision with a most striking and altogether unaccountable distinctness the entire absence of ocean or sea and indeed of any lake or river or body of water whatsoever struck me at first glance as the most extraordinary feature in its geological condition yet strange to say I beheld vast level regions of a character decidedly alluvial. Although by far the greater portion of the hemisphere in sight was covered with innumerable volcanic mountains, conical in shape, and having more the appearance of artificial than of natural protuberance. The highest among them does not exceed three and three-quarter miles in perpendicular elevation, but a map of the volcanic districts of the Campi Flagrei would afford to your excellencies a better idea of their general surface than any unworthy description i might think proper to attempt the greater part of them were in a state of evident eruption and gave me fearfully to understand their fury and their power by the repeated thunders of the miscalled meteoric stones which now rushed upward by the balloon with a frequency more and more appalling april eighteenth Today I found an enormous increase in the moon's apparent bulk, and the evidently accelerated velocity of my descent began to fill me with alarm. It will be remembered that, in the earliest stage of my speculations upon the possibility of a passage to the moon, the existence, in its vicinity, of an atmosphere dense in proportion to the bulk of the planet had entered largely into my calculations. This, too, in spite of many theories to the contrary, and, it may be added, in spite of a general disbelief in the existence of any lunar atmosphere at all. But in addition to what I have already urged in regard to Ancus Comet and the zodiacal light, I had been strengthened in my opinions by certain observations of Mr. Schroeder of Lilienthal. He observed the moon when two days and a half old, in the evening soon after sunset, before the dark part was visible, and continued to watch it until it became visible, the two cusps appearing tapering in a very sharp faint prolongation each exhibiting its farthest extremity faintly illuminated by the solar rays before any part of the dark hemisphere was visible soon afterward the whole dark limb became illuminated this prolongation of the cusps beyond the semicircle i thought must have arisen from the refraction of the sun's rays by the moon's atmosphere i computed also the height of the atmosphere which could refract light enough into its dark hemisphere to produce a twilight more luminous than the light reflected from the earth when the moon is about thirty-two degrees from the new, to be one thousand three hundred fifty-six Paris feet. In this view, I suppose the greatest height capable of refracting the solar ray to be five thousand three hundred seventy-six feet. My ideas on this topic had also received confirmation by a passage in the eighty-second volume of the Philosophical Transactions, in which it is stated that an occultation of Jupiter's satellites, the third disappeared after having been about one or two degrees of time indistinct, and the fourth became indiscernible near the limb. Cassini frequently observed Saturn, Jupiter, and the fixed stars, when approaching the moon to occultation, to have their circular figure changed into an oval one, 
and in other occultations he found no alteration of figure at all. Hence it might be supposed that at some times and not at others there is a dense matter encompassing the moon wherein the rays of the stars are refracted. Upon the resistance, or more properly, upon the support of an atmosphere existing in the state of density imagined, I had of course entirely depended for the safety of my ultimate descent. Should I then after all prove to have been mistaken, I had in consequence nothing better to expect, as a finale to my adventure, than being dashed into atoms against the rugged surface of the satellite. And indeed, I had now every reason to be terrified. My distance from the moon was comparatively trifling, while the labor required by the condenser was diminished not at all, and I could discover no indication whatever of a decreasing rarity in the air. April 19th. This morning, to my great joy, about nine o'clock, the surface of the moon being frightfully near, and my apprehensions excited to the utmost, the pump of my condenser at length gave evident tokens of an alteration in the atmosphere. By ten, I had reason to believe its density considerably increased. By eleven, very little labor was necessary at the apparatus, and at twelve o'clock, with some hesitation, I ventured to unscrew the tourniquets, when, finding no inconvenience from having done so, I finally threw open the gum-elastic chamber and unrigged it from around the car. As might have been expected, spasms and violent headache were the immediate consequences of an experiment so precipitate and full of danger. But these and other difficulties attending respiration, as they were by no means so great as to put me in peril of my life, I determined to endure as best I could, in consideration of my leaving them behind me momently in my approach to the denser strata near the moon. This approach, however, was still impetuous in the extreme, and it soon became alarmingly certain that, although I had probably not been deceived in the expectation of an atmosphere dense in proportion to the mass of the satellite, still I had been wrong in supposing this density, even at the surface, at all adequate to the support of the great weight contained in the car of my balloon. Yet this should have been the case, and in equal degree as at the surface of the earth. The actual gravity of bodies at either planet supposed in the ratio of the atmospheric condensation. That it was not the case, however, my precipitous downfall gave testimony enough. Why it was not so can only be explained by a reference to those possible geological disturbances to which I have formerly alluded. At all events, I was now close upon the planet and coming down with the most terrible impetuosity. I lost not a moment, accordingly, in throwing overboard first my ballast, then my water-kegs, then my condensing apparatus and gum-elastic chamber, and finally every article within the car. But it was all to no purpose. I still fell with horrible rapidity, and was now not more than half a mile from the surface. As a last resource, therefore, having got rid of my coat, hat, and boots, I cut loose from the balloon the car itself which was of no inconsiderable weight, and thus, clinging with both hands to the network, I had barely time to observe that the whole country, as far as the eye could reach, was thickly interspersed with diminutive habitations, ere I tumbled headlong into the very heart of a fantastical-looking city, and into the middle of a vast crowd of ugly little people, who none of them uttered a single syllable, or gave themselves the least trouble to render me assistance, but stood like a parcel of idiots, grinning in a ludicrous manner and eyeing me and my balloon askant, with their arms set akimbo. I turned from them in contempt, and gazing upward at the earth so lately left, and left perhaps forever, 
beheld it like a huge, dull copper shield, about two degrees in diameter, fixed immovably in the heavens overhead, and tipped on one of its edges with a crescent border of the most brilliant gold. No traces of land or water could be discovered, and the whole was clouded with variable spots, and belted with tropical and equatorial zones. Thus, may it please your excellencies, after a series of great anxieties, unheard of dangers, and unparalleled escapes, I had, at length, on the nineteenth day of my departure from Rotterdam, arrived in safety at the conclusion of a voyage undoubtedly the most extraordinary and the most momentous ever accomplished, undertaken, or conceived by any denizen of earth. But my adventures yet remain to be related. And indeed your excellencies may well imagine that, after a residence of five years upon a planet not only deeply interesting in its own peculiar character, but rendered doubly so by its intimate connection, in capacity of satellite, with a world inhabited by man, I may have intelligence for the private ear of the State's College of Astronomers of far more importance than the details, however wonderful, of the mere voyage which so happily concluded. This is in fact the case. I have much very much, which it would give me the greatest pleasure to communicate. I have much to say of the climate of the planet, of its wonderful alternations of heat and cold, of unmitigated and burning sunshine for one fortnight, and more than polar frigidity for the next, of a constant transfer of moisture, by distillation like that in vacuo, from the point beneath the sun to the point the farthest from it, of a variable zone of running water, of the people themselves, of their manners, customs, and political institutions, of their peculiar physical construction, of their ugliness, of their want of ears, those useless appendages in an atmosphere so peculiarly modified, of their consequent ignorance of the use and properties of speech, of their substitute for speech in a singular method of intercommunication, of the incomprehensible connection between each particular individual in the moon with some particular individual on the earth a connection analogous with and depending upon that of the orbs of the planet and the satellites and by means of which the lives and destinies of the inhabitants of the one are interwoven with the lives and destinies of the inhabitants of the other and above all if it so please your excellencies above all of those dark and hideous mysteries which lie in the outer regions of the moon regions which owing to the almost miraculous accordance of the satellite's rotation on its own axis with its sidereal revolution about the earth, have never yet been turned, and, by God's mercy, never shall be turned to the scrutiny of the telescopes of man. All this, and more, much more, would I most willingly detail. But, to be brief, I must have my reward. I am pining for a return to my family and to my home, and as the price of any farther communication on my part, in consideration of the light which I have it in my power to throw upon many very important branches of physical and metaphysical science, I must solicit, through the influence of your honourable body, a pardon for the crime of which I have been guilty with the death of the creditors upon my departure from Rotterdam. This, then, is the object of the present paper, its bearer, an inhabitant of the moon, whom I prevailed upon and properly instructed to be my messenger to the earth, will await your excellency's pleasure, and return to me with a pardon in question, if it can, in any manner, be obtained. I have the honour to be, etc., your excellency's very humble servant, Hans Fall. 
Upon finishing the perusal of this very extraordinary document, Professor Rubadub, it is said, dropped his pipe upon the ground in the extremity of his surprise, and Mynheer Superbus von Underduck, having taken off his spectacles, wiped them, and deposited them in his pocket, so far forgot both himself and his dignity as to turn around three times upon his heel in the quintessence of astonishment and admiration. There was no doubt about the matter. The pardon should be obtained. So at least swore with a round oath Professor Rubadub, and so finally thought the illustrious von Underduck, as he took the arm of his brother in science, and without saying a word began to make the best of his way home to deliberate upon the measures to be adopted. Having reached the door, however, of the burgomaster's dwelling, the professor ventured to suggest that as the messenger had thought proper to disappear, no doubt frightened to death by the savage appearance of the burghers of Rotterdam, the pardon would be of little use, as no one but a man of the moon would undertake a voyage to so fast a distance. To the truth of this observation the burgomaster assented, and the matter was therefore at an end. Not so, however, rumours and speculations. The letter, having been published, gave rise to a variety of gossip and opinion. Some of the overwise even made themselves ridiculous by decrying the whole business as nothing better than a hoax. But hoax, with these sort of people, is, I believe, a general term for all matters above their comprehension. For my part, I cannot conceive upon what data they have founded such an accusation. Let us see what they say. Imprimus, that certain wags in Rotterdam have certain special antipathies to certain burgomasters and astronomers. Don't understand at all. Secondly, that an odd little dwarf and bottle conjurer, both of whose ears for some misdemeanor have been cut off close to his head, has been missing for several days from the neighboring city of Bruges. Well, what of that? Thirdly, that the newspapers which were stuck all over the little balloon were newspapers of Holland, and therefore could not have been made in the moon. They were dirty papers, very dirty, and Gluck the printer would take his Bible oath to their having been printed in Rotterdam. He was mistaken, undoubtedly mistaken. Fourthly, that Hans Fall himself, the drunken villain, and the three very idle gentlemen styled his creditors, were all seen no longer than two or three days ago, in a tippling house in the suburbs, having just returned, with money in their pockets, from a trip beyond the sea. Don't believe it. Don't believe a word of it. Lastly, that it is an opinion very generally received, or which ought to be generally received, that the College of Astronomers in the city of Rotterdam, as well as other colleges in all other parts of the world, not to mention colleges and astronomers in general, are, to say the least of the matter, not a whit better, nor greater, nor wiser than they ought to be. End the Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Fall, Part 3 Recorded by Novella Serena Org. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. Notes to Hans Fall. Note 1. Referencing the title. Strictly speaking, there is but little similarity between the above sketchy trifle and the celebrated moon story of Mr. Locke, but as both have the character of hoaxes, although one is in a tone of banter, the other of downright earnest, 
and as both hoaxes are on the same subject, the moon, moreover, as both attempt to give plausibility by scientific detail, the author of Hans Fall thinks it necessary to say, in self-defense, that his own jeu d'esprit was published in the Southern Literary Messenger about three weeks before the commencement of Mr. L's in the New York Sun. Fancying a likeness which, perhaps, does not exist, some of the New York papers copied Hans Fall and collated it with the moon hoax, by way of detecting the writer of the one in the writer of the other. As many more persons were actually gulled by the moon hoax than would be willing to acknowledge the fact, it may here afford some little amusement to show why no one should have been deceived, to point out those particulars of the story which should have been sufficient to establish its real character. Indeed, however rich the imagination displayed in this ingenious fiction, it wanted much of the force which might have been given it by a more scrupulous attention to facts and to general analogy. That the public were misled, even for an instant, merely proves the gross ignorance which is so generally prevalent upon subjects of an astronomical nature. The moon's distance from the earth is, in round numbers, 240,000 miles. If we desire to ascertain how near, apparently, a lens would bring the satellite, or any distant object, we, of course, have but to divide the distance by the magnifying, or, more strictly, by the space-penetrating power of the glass. Mr. L. makes his lens to have a power of 42,000 times. By this, divide 240,000, the moon's real distance, and we have five miles and five-sevenths, as the apparent distance. No animal at all could be seen so far, much less the minute points particularized in the story. Mr. L. speaks about Sir John Herschel's perceiving flowers, the papaverias, etc., and even detecting the color and shape of the eyes of small birds. Shortly before, too, he has himself observed that the lens could not render perceptible objects of less than eighteen inches in diameter. But even this, as I have said, is giving the glass by far too great power. It may be observed, in passing, that this prodigious glass is said to have been molded at the glass-house of Messrs. Hartley and Grant in Dumbarton. But Messrs. H. and G.'s establishment had ceased operations for many years previous to the publication of the hoax. On page 13, pamphlet edition, speaking of a hairy veil over the eyes of a species of bison, the author says, quote, it immediately occurred to the acute mind of Dr. Herschel that this was a providential contrivance to protect the eyes of the animal from the great extremes of light and darkness, to which all the inhabitants of our side of the moon are periodically subjected. But this cannot be thought a very acute observation of the doctors. The inhabitants of our side of the moon have, evidently, no darkness at all, so there can be nothing of the extremes mentioned. In the absence of the sun, they have a light from the earth equal to that of thirteen full unclouded moons. The topography throughout, even when professing to accord with Blunt's lunar chart, is entirely at variance with that or any other lunar chart, and even grossly at variance with itself. The points of the compass, too, are in inextricable confusion, the writer appearing to be ignorant that, on a lunar map, these are not in accordance with terrestrial points, the east being to the left, etc. 
deceived perhaps by the vague titles, Mari Nubium, Mari Tranquilliatis, Mare Fecundiatis, etc., given to the dark spots by former astronomers, Mr. L. has entered into details regarding oceans and other large bodies of water in the moon, whereas there is no astronomical point more positively ascertained than that no such bodies exist there. In examining the boundary between light and darkness, in the crescent or gibbous moon, where this boundary crosses any of the dark places, the line of division is found to be rough and jagged, but were these dark places liquid, it would evidently be even. The description of the wings of the man-bat on page 21 is but a literal copy of Peter Wilkins' account of the wings of his flying islanders. This simple fact should have induced suspicion, at least, it might be thought. On page 23 we have the following. Quote, what a prodigious influence must our thirteen times larger globe have exercised upon this satellite when an embryo in the womb of time, the passive subject of chemical affinity, quote. This is very fine, but it should be observed that no astronomer would have made such a remark, especially to any journal of science. For the earth, in the sense intended, is not only thirteen, but forty-nine times larger than the moon. A similar objection applies to the whole of the concluding pages, where, by way of introduction to some discoveries in Saturn, the philosophical correspondent enters into a minute schoolboy account of that planet, this to the Edinburgh Journal of Science. But there is one point in particular which should have betrayed the fiction. Let us imagine the power actually possessed of seeing animals upon the moon's surface, what would first arrest the attention of an observer from the earth? Certainly neither their size, shape, nor any other such peculiarity, so soon as their remarkable situation. They would appear to be walking, with heels up and head down, in the manner of flies on a ceiling. The real observer would have uttered an instant ejaculation of surprise, however prepared by previous knowledge, at the singularity of their position, the fictitious observer has not even mentioned the subject, but speaks of seeing the entire bodies of such creatures, when it is demonstrable that he would have seen only the diameter of their heads. It might as well be remarked, in conclusion, that the size, and particularly the powers of the man-bats, for example, their ability to fly in so rare an atmosphere, if indeed the moon have any, with most of the other fancies in regard to animal and vegetable existence, are at variance generally with all analogical reasoning on these themes, and that analogy here will often amount to conclusive demonstration. It is perhaps scarcely necessary to add that all the suggestions attributed to Brewster and Herschel in the beginning of the article about, quote, a transfusion of artificial light through the focal object of vision, End quote, etc., etc., belong to that species of figurative writing which comes, most properly, under the denomination of rigmarole. There is a real and very definite limit to optical discovery among the stars, a limit whose nature need only be stated to be understood. If, indeed, the casting of large lenses were all that is required, man's ingenuity would ultimately prove equal to the task, and we might have them of any size demanded. But, unhappily, in proportion to the increase of size in the lens, 
and consequently of space-penetrating power, is the diminution of light from the object, by diffusion of its rays. And for this evil there is no remedy within human ability. For an object is seen by means of that light alone which proceeds from itself, whether direct or reflected. Thus the only artificial light which could avail Mr. Locke would be some artificial light which he should be able to throw, not upon the focal object of vision, but upon the real object to be viewed, to wit, upon the moon. It has been easily calculated that, when the light proceeding from a star becomes so diffused as to be as weak as the natural light proceeding from the whole of the stars, in a clear and moonless night, then the star is no longer visible for any practical purpose. The Earl of Ross's telescope, lately constructed in England, has a speculum with a reflecting surface of 4,071 square inches, the Herschel telescope having one of only 1,811. The metal of the Earl of Ross's is six feet in diameter, it is five and a half inches thick at the edges, and five at the center. The weight is three tons, the focal length is fifty feet. I have lately read a singular and somewhat ingenious little book, whose title page runs thus. L'homme dans la lune ou le voyage chimérique fait au monde de la lune. Nouvellement découvert par Dominique Gonzalez, aventurier espagnol, autrement dit le courrier volant. Mis en notre langue par JBDA Paris, chez François Pio, près la fontaine de Saint-Benoît, et chez J. Guagnard, au premier pilier de la grande salle du palais, proche les consultations. 1647. The writer professes to have translated his work from the English of one Mr. Davison, Davidson, although there is a terrible ambiguity in the statement. J'en ai eu, says he, l'original de Monsieur Davison, médecin des mieux versés qui soit aujourd'hui dans la connaissance des belles lettres et surtout de la philosophie naturelle. Je lui ai cette obligation entre les autres de m'avoir non seulement mis en main ce livre en anglois, mais encore le manuscrit de sieur Thomas Danan, gentilhomme écossois, recommandable pour sa vertu, sur la version duquel j'avoue que j'ai tiré le plan de la mienne. After some irrelevant adventures, much in the manner of Gil Blas, and which occupy the first thirty pages, the author relates that, being ill during a sea voyage, the crew abandoned him, together with a negro servant, on the island of St. Helena. To increase the chances of obtaining food, the two separate and live as far apart as possible. This brings about a training of birds, to serve the purpose of carrier pigeons between them. By and by, these are taught to carry parcels of some weight, and this weight is gradually increased. At length, the idea is entertained of uniting the force of a great number of the birds, with a view to raising the author himself. A machine is contrived for the purpose, and we have a minute description of it, which is materially helped out by a steel engraving. Here we perceive the Señor Gonzales, with point ruffles and a huge periwig, seated astride something which resembles very closely a broomstick, and borne aloft by a multitude of wild swans, gansas, which had strings reaching from their tails to the machine. The main event detailed in the Señor's narrative depends upon a very important fact, of which the reader is kept in ignorance until near the end of the book. The Gansas, with whom he has become so familiar, are not really denizens of St. Helena, but of the moon. 
thence it had been their custom, time out of mind, to migrate annually to some portion of the earth. In proper season, of course, they would return home, and the author, happening one day to require their services for a short voyage, is unexpectedly carried straight up, and in a very brief period arrives at the satellite. Here he finds, among other odd things, that the people enjoy extreme happiness, that they have no law, that they die without pain, that they are from ten to thirty feet in height, that they live five thousand years, that they have an emperor called Irdonazur, and that they can jump sixty feet high, when, being out of the gravitating influence, they can fly about with fans. I cannot forbear giving a specimen of the general philosophy of the volume. Quote, I must not forget here that the stars appeared only on that side of the globe turned toward the moon, and that the closer they were to it, the larger they seemed. I have also me and the earth. As to the stars, since there was no night where I was, they always had the same appearance, not brilliant as usual, but pale, and very nearly like the moon of a morning. But few of them were visible, and these ten times larger, as well as I could judge, than they seemed to the inhabitants of the earth. The moon, which wanted two days of being full, was of a terrible bigness. I must not forget here that the stars appeared only on that side of the globe turned toward the moon, and that the closer they were to it, the larger they seemed. I have also to inform you that, whether it was calm weather or stormy, I found myself always immediately between the moon and the earth. I was convinced of this for two reasons, because my birds always flew in a straight line, and because whenever we attempted to rest, we were carried insensibly around the globe of the earth. For I admit the opinion of Copernicus, who maintains that it never ceases to revolve from the east to the west, not upon the poles of the equinoctial, commonly called the poles of the world, but upon those of the zodiac, a question of which I propose to speak more at length hereafter, when I shall have leisure to refresh my memory in regard to the astrology which I learned at Salamanca when young, and have since forgotten. End quote. Notwithstanding the blunders italicized, the book is not without some claim to attention, as affording a native specimen of the current astronomical notions of the time. One of these assumed that the gravitating power extended but a short distance from the earth's surface, and accordingly we find our voyager carried insensibly around the globe, etc. There have been other voyages to the moon, but none of higher merit than the one just mentioned. That of Bergiac is utterly meaningless. In the third volume of the American Quarterly Review will be found quite an elaborate criticism upon a certain journey of the kind in question, a criticism in which it is difficult to say whether the critic most exposes the stupidity of the book or his own absurd ignorance of astronomy. I forget the title of the work, but the means of the voyage were more deplorably ill-conceived than are even the ganzas of our friend the Señor González. The adventurer in digging the earth happens to discover a peculiar metal for which the moon has a strong attraction, and straightway constructs of it a box, which, when cast loose from its terrestrial fastenings, flies with him forthwith to the satellite. The flight of Thomas O'Rourke is a jeu d'esprit not altogether contemptible, and has been translated into German. 
Thomas, the hero, was, in fact, the gamekeeper of an Irish peer, whose eccentricities gave rise to the tale. The flight is made on an eagle's back from Hungry Hill, a lofty mountain at the end of Bantry Bay. In these various brochures, the aim is always satirical, the theme being a description of Lunarian customs as compared with ours. In none is there any effort at plausibility in the details of the voyage itself. The writers seem, in each instance, to be utterly uninformed in respect to astronomy. In Hans Fall, the design is original, inasmuch as regards an attempt at verisimilitude, in the application of scientific principles, so far as the whimsical nature of the subject would permit, to the actual passage between the earth and the moon. End of note one. Note two, referencing, quote, it appeared to me evidently in the nature of a rare atmosphere extending from the sun outward, beyond the orbit of Venus at least, and I believed indefinitely farther. End quote. The zodiacal light is probably what the ancients called Trabis. Emicant Trabis quos docos vocant. Pliny, Book 2, page 26. End of note 2. Note 3. Referencing, quote, It has been observed that, in balloon ascensions to any considerable height, besides the pain attending respiration, great uneasiness is experienced about the head and body, often accompanied with bleeding at the nose and other symptoms of an alarming kind, and growing more and more inconvenient in proportion to the altitude attained. End quote. Since the original publication of Hans Fall, I find that Mr. Green, of Nassau Balloon Notoriety, and other late aeronauts, deny the assertions of Humboldt in this respect, and speak of a decreasing inconvenience precisely in accordance with the theory here urged in a mere spirit of banter. End of note 3. Note 4. Referencing, quote, My ideas on this topic had also received confirmation by a passage in the 82nd volume of the Philosophical Translations, in which it is stated that at an occultation of Jupiter's satellites, the third disappeared after having been about one minute or two minutes of time indistinct, and the fourth became indiscernible near the limb. Havelius writes that he has several times found, in skies perfectly clear, when even stars of the sixth and seventh magnitude were conspicuous, that, at the same altitude of the moon, at the same elongation from the earth, and with one and the same excellent telescope, the moon and its maculae did not appear equally lucid at all times. From the circumstances of the observation, it is evident that the cause of this phenomenon is not either in our air, in the tube, in the moon, or in the eye of the spectator, but must be looked for in something, an atmosphere, existing about the moon. End of Notes to Hans Fall